So we come to the, uh, to the scripture. Uh, let me ask you to bow with me to pray. Father in heaven, now as we come to your word, I pray that you would give us good attention. Uh, for this isn't any word, this is the very word of God. And I pray, Father, that you would cause it to have its perfect work in us. I pray that be, that it would be the very word of hope to us. And in leaving this place, we would know that we belong to you through our Lord Jesus Christ and that that is unshakable because Christ lives. So, Father, I pray now that you would be with us, help us, to keep us from any distraction. In Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Hebrews and chapter 6. I want to begin reading with verse 19 and read all the way through chapter 7. It's a long read, but it's the Word of God, so we'll do that. Hebrews 6, verse 19, please. Just by way of reminder, if you don't have a Bible or you don't bring your Bible, uh, there are Bibles you can pick up by the door as you come in. If you don't have one, you can take that one home with you and keep it as yours. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, hear the word of God. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met uh, Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, uh, though these are also descendants from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. <clears throat> now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in, in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one is ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. 
And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now this was a long passage, I know. And a bit strange, because it mentions a person uh, who's only mentioned twice in the whole Bible, except for in Hebrews. Only twice in the Old Testament, this man, Melchizedek. So, what I want to do today uh, is first uh, lay out why it is that the author of Hebrews introduces this man, Melchizedek, this priest king, uh, as he does at this particular moment in his message. And then secondly to lay out why this brings to us full assurance of hope, which is vital and necessary and a great blessing for the Christian life. Those two things. Why it is that he, he, he mentions and, and really pumps up this man Melchizedek in this particular chapter. And then secondly, how this helps us to have full assurance of hope, which is a great, vital, living blessing for uh, Christians. Let me begin like this. Jesus, as high priest, is very, very significant. It's mentioned uh, a, a number of different times uh, in the book of Hebrews. For instance, in chapter 2, in uh, verse 17, we read, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he, that is Jesus, might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Uh, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So it's very important that Jesus be high priest so our sins can be atoned for and therefore forgiven. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. There's no confession unless Jesus is our uh, high priest. And then in chapter 4, in verse 14, we read this, since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Uh, let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Again, this high priestliness of Jesus is so vital because we know that always we have one who sympathizes with us in heaven. And he hears our prayers and brings mercy and grace uh, to help us uh, in times of need. And then in chapter 5, and uh, uh, verse 6, he says of Jesus that you're this high priest 
you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever, uh, after the order of Melchizedek. And then we noticed in these verses, in chapter 6, verses 19 and 20 that we took up last Sunday, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so it's very important that Jesus be high priest. That's established. Secondly, what about this person, Melchizedek? Well, if you turn back to Genesis and chapter 14, we see the first of two references to him uh, in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 14, verse 17. This comes at a point where Abraham rescues his nephew Lot. Lot lived in Sodom before Sodom and was this point before it was of Sodom and Gomorrah fame. But he lived in Sodom and there was a battle, a war, and Lot and all his possessions and his family and many uh, from Sodom were captured and taken away. Uh, and Uncle Abraham comes uh, with his men and um, gets Lot, brings him back home with his possessions and family and so forth. So at this moment in time, uh, the king of Sodom is coming out to meet Abraham to give him a reward. And this is how we read it. After his return from the defeat of somebody with a big name and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. All that was recorded in what we read. So we find out that this guy Melchizedek is a king, yet also a priest. He's the king of Salem, which is short for Jerusalem. Jerusalem didn't exist as Jerusalem then. It was a Canaanite city, Salem, Jerusalem. Um, the author of Hebrews says, therefore, he's the king of Shalom, the king of peace. He's also the king of righteousness. This passage in Genesis doesn't say that. The author of Hebrews does. And he says it because his name means king of righteousness. Melech means uh, king. Zadok means righteousness in Hebrew. So he's the king of Righteousness. And so here's this king who's also a priest who meets Abraham and Abraham affirms him. Abraham says, yes, I affirm that you're a king. I affirm that you're a priest because I'm going to pay my tithes to you. And so rather than receiving a reward from the king of Sodom, which Abraham rejects if you go on and read the passage, he actually pays tithes to this priest king, Melchizedek, who, and he receives from him bread and wine. But that's all we know about it. It doesn't go on for any explanation. If you're reading through the Bible, as some of you uh, in Michael Lemon and Scott Rask's class on this read through the Bible, you've read through this and you're realizing, if, if I'm you and as I read through this, I, I really keep looking throughout Genesis, tell me more about this Melchizedek guy. Abraham seemed to really be impressed with him and to pay his tithes to him. So, so why isn't there more about him? And there just simply isn't. The next and final mention of him is in Psalm 110. 
where David mentions him. Psalm 110 is recognized as a psalm about the Messiah. And it has uh, two images of this Messiah. One, that he's going to be a king. The second is that he's going to be a priest. Now you have to understand, that would be very strange to someone from Israel. It was impossible for a king to also be a priest. The priest came from, came from the tribe of Levi. The high priests from the family of Aaron. In fact, there was an occasion where a king named Uzziah wanted to go into the temple and, and uh, burn incense. And the priest came to him and he brought 80 other priests with him as well. And says, you can't do this. You're the king. We're the priests. We're the only ones who can bear, burn incense in the temple. And King Uzziah persisted, the scripture says, in his pride. And as he did, he broke out in leprosy. And he was banished for the rest of his life. And so it was impossible for a priest to also be king. It was impossible for a king to also be priest. So that would be unthinkable. But here's what King David writes, Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies uh, your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. He's speaking of a king at the very right hand of God who will get this volunteer army that will submit themselves to him and he will rule and he will rule in the midst of his enemies. That's an interesting phrase I don't have time to do with today, but think about Jesus' rule in the midst of his enemies. But, but, but he's the king. But then notice verse 4. The Lord has sworn, again another oath from God, who doesn't need to make an oath, but makes oaths, swears by himself so that we'll get it, that this is really true and we can bank on it. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's rather strange. A king who will be a priest after this order of Melchizedek. In fact, the prophets begin to speak of this priest king who will come, for instance, turn to Zechariah and chapter 6. If you can't find Zechariah, it's right before Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament. Zechariah and chapter 6. Zechariah is speaking then of something, someone who is to come. Verse 12. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. Now that little expression, the branch, was used by the other prophets, most especially Isaiah and Jeremiah, to speak of the Messiah who is to come. Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder. And he goes on. And so the prophet begins to speak of this one who will come seemingly impossibly as a priest and a king. And so now as the author of Hebrews, you see, wants to lay out the fact that Jesus from the tribe of Judah, who is a king after King David, if you will, is also a high priest. What's he do? And this, to me, frankly, is where the Bible is just so amazing. 
Because God set this up way back in Genesis 14 with this very strange character named Melchizedek about whom he didn't give us all the information he possibly could. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses just simply lets him in and out. He tells us nothing about his genealogy, nothing about his parentage, nothing about his ancestry, nothing about his birth, nothing about his death. It isn't that he didn't have parents. It isn't that he didn't die. We just simply don't know anything about that. And so the author of Hebrews now plucks him up as... God no doubt intended as Moses was writing and God no doubt intended as David was prophesying about him and he says, all right, here's one like Jesus. Because even though Melchizedek didn't become a priest because of his ancestry, he wasn't a Levite, he wasn't from the family of Aaron because he was before all of that. And it's like he had no beginning and no end. There's no end to Melchizedek's priesthood. We, we don't get an, an end there. He just sort of shows up. And then, and then all of a sudden David says, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so the author of Hebrews points him out and says, just so happens that he's the king of peace. Just so happens that he's the king of righteousness. Well, now we have one who is the king of righteousness from whom righteousness comes and who rules by righteousness. And we have this one who, who, who is the king of peace, who brings peace. And we have this one who is a king and priest, just like the one that's already been around this Melchizedek. You see, there's precedent for this. God didn't ruin things. God didn't go against what he had said to the Old Testament people. But he said there's a different priesthood other than the one of Levi. There's a different high priestliness other than Aaron's family. There's this order of Melchizedek. And the most significant thing here is that he's a priest forever. That's what's stressed. The point that he's a priest uh, forever. For instance, in chapter 5, and verse 6, he speaks and he says, also in another place, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In chapter 6 and verse 20, he speaks of Jesus, who has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In chapter 7, verse 3, he speaks of Melchizedek and Jesus, like him, as a priest, continues a priest forever. In chapter 7, verse 16, uh, let me begin in verse 15, the start of the sentence, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, that is ancestry, but on the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then in uh, verse 21, But this one who was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you're a priest forever. Verse 24, uh, But he holds his priesthood, that is Jesus, permanently, because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. You see, the point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make here is that this priesthood is a better priesthood. Thus, our hope is a better hope. Because the deficiency of the Old Testament system, and God knew this was a deficiency, the Old Testament system wasn't to ever be permanent. It wasn't to ever go on forever as it was. It was to be fulfilled in another and thus be eternal in that sense. And he knew it was provisional. He knew it was a shadow. He knew it was just to, to point to that which is to come. 
And so he gave to ancient Israel prophets who would come and speak the word of God, kings who would come and rule uh, as a representative of God's righteousness. He gave them priests who would be their intermediaries, who would go to God on their behalf and make sacrifices and pray and intercede and then receive from God and then give the people uh, declarations of affirmations, blessings, benedictions. But all that was to point to another because the prophets were deficient because they didn't know God as a son would know the Father. The kings were deficient because they were to be the righteous representatives of God's rule on the earth, but they themselves inherently were sinners. And thus they failed. And priests wouldn't be perfect representatives before us. Well, they were good in the sense that they sympathized with us because they were like us, so that when we would come to a priest and tell him our sin, he would laugh. He'd understand that human beings sin like that because he's a human being. And he would go to the Father. But the problem is that he himself was a sinner. And for him to be accepted, sacrifices would have to be made. And not only that, 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 that he could only go in the presence of God once a year in the holy, most holy place. And that would be it. And he would sprinkle the blood of an animal who might be a substitute for a human being, but not a perfect substitute for a human being. Because it's just a goat. And when this priest would die, another priest would have to come into his place. There wouldn't be one priest who would stand always on our behalf. But now the better hope comes. The sure and steadfast hope comes. The very anchor of our soul hope comes. Who has gone into that inner place behind the curtain. This very one Jesus. Who is like us in every way yet without sin. So he can sympathize with us in our weakness as human beings. But because he was without sin can stand in the very presence of God. In himself. And be accepted. And even though he died for our sins, thus being our sacrifice, he rose again from the dead. And when he ascended into the very inner place, he lives always to intercede for us. A priest forever, our steadfast hope. You see, our hope before God is as sure and as certain as Jesus' life is indestructible. So long as he lives, he continues to plead His blood, to plead His righteousness in heaven on our behalf. And so long as He continues to live, you see, then we continue to be saved. And so our salvation, the objective hope that we have for our salvation, is on the presence of Jesus making intercession for us. If ever He would die, we would be sunk. But he shall never die. Because he's a priest, a high priest, forever. And that's his point. So he says in verse 25, Consequently, that is, because he's a permanent priest, because he'll never die now, because he lives permanently forever, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's able to save to the uttermost. Save from what? Save from God. Save from the wrath of God. It's, it's God we must be saved from because our sin that puts us at odds with God. 
It's sin that puts us under his condemnation. And so Jesus comes that we might be saved from his Father's wrath. And so Jesus, out of love for us, dies for us, lives for us, intercedes for us. The Father's case is satisfied and his love is borne out in Jesus towards us. And thus we be secure. For he is this permanent high priest. He's able to save to the uttermost, meaning completely. Everything that needs to be saved about us will be saved about us so long as Jesus makes intercession. Because what he's doing before his Father and he intercedes and mediates on our behalf is, is guaranteeing everything that we need to be saved. What he's doing is he stands in the presence of his Father is guaranteeing everything that we need to be saved from beginning to end. Forgiveness of sins. Help to overcome temptation in this life. The ability to persevere in faith even now and to continue to draw near to Him. New bodies on a particular day of God's appointment. Glory. No wonder Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Because he's the one who is a priest forever. He's the one who lives to intercede. He's the one, because he's a priest forever, can save to the other uttermost those who draw near to him. No wonder Peter preached there is no other name given to us under heaven by which men must be saved. No wonder he preached all who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. How could they not? He promises as this high priest who lives forever, interceding, that he saves to the uttermost all those who draw near to him. So call upon his name and you will be saved. It's no wonder the Apostle John writes, uh, my little children, I write this so that you will not sin. But if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's our advocate. He's our intercessor. He's our defense attorney. He's the one who pleads his case on our behalf. His case meaning, I died for them. His case meaning, I lived for them. His case meaning, I saved them. So as long as he lives, and as long as he does that, then we're safe, you see, that he is our sure and steadfast anchor of our souls. Now, did you ever wonder, particularly, what it is that Jesus says in the presence of his Father on our behalf to guarantee all of that. Let's take a glimpse. Turn, please, to Luke in chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, verse 31. This is a scene from the night in which Jesus was betrayed. He's about to be crucified. And he has this discussion with his dear one, Simon Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. You see, 
Jesus is continually interceding for us, praying for us, pleading for us, that our faith will not fail. So as long as he lives, and as long as he continues to intercede for us, we may have hope that our faith will not fail, that we'll continuously draw near to God. In fact, in that Hebrews verse of 725, that little expression that he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him, that little expression, draw near to him, is in the present tense, meaning that it's always now. In Greek, the present tense is what we call a continuous present. That is, it's always in the now. It never goes into the future, per se. And so we're always drawing near. At every moment in time, we're in the present of drawing near. We must continue to draw near. And you say, well, will I continue to draw near? And the answer is yes, so long as Jesus stands in our place in heaven, interceding for us because he's praying, he's interceding, he's pleading that our faith will not fail. And as long as our faith does not fail, we'll continue to draw near to him. That's how safe we are. Uh, Turn to John in chapter 15, in verse verse 24. We read this, Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. You see, Jesus is saying, all right, I'm interceding on your behalf, so you come to the Father through me. So ask in my name. Come to me and ask. And you'll receive. So the very fact that he intercedes for us is so that our prayers will be heard and our prayers will be answered. And so long as Jesus' life is indestructible, so long as Jesus continues to intercede for us, you understand that when you pray, you will be heard. And you will receive. Notice chapter 17. This is Jesus' intercession uh, for his disciples and for us as well. Verse 11. He prays this. And I'm no longer in the world. But they are in the world and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. Jesus is always praying that we be kept in his name. Meaning we be kept as children of God, we continue to have the very name of God upon us. His stamp, His mark, that we belong to Him. His name is upon us. We belong to Him. So long as Jesus' life is indestructible, so long as Jesus is continuing to intercede, then we can know that for sure. Verse 13. He writes, But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. He's saying, listen, Jesus is always interceding that we might have his joy, his certainty, his contentment, his peace, and whatever emotion that brings that we would call joy. And so you can rest assured, you can live with the assurance that your life will not be absent of joy. Because he is pleading your case always that you would have his joy. Verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. As long as Jesus is alive and interceding for us, we needn't fear even the evil of Satan. 
doesn't mean there won't be difficulties. But we don't need to fear that he will get us because Jesus is interceding on our behalf that he won't. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent you into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. As long as Jesus is interceding on our behalf, we will be maturing in the faith. We will be growing in the faith. We will be becoming more holy. Because he prays that we would be sanctified uh, in the truth. Verse 20. I do not ask uh, for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So... Jesus is always interceding that we would be one. Not only us together and us with other Christians now, but we would be one with all those believers who've gone before us. And that we'd be one with all those believers who come after us. That we'd be the company of God's people. That is true because Jesus intercedes. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I've given to them so that they may be one even as we are. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you've sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. A day will come where you'll see Jesus and be with him and see his glory. And the guarantee of that is that that is what he is constantly interceding, pleading on our behalf before the Father. Turn to Romans in chapter 8. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who, uh, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. As long as Jesus stands to intercede, nothing can be against us that we need to worry about overtaking us. As long as Jesus intercedes, we know that all good things will be given to us because His Father will always be reminded that he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Therefore, will he not also, along with him, give us all things? We know that there is none who can make a charge before us as long as Jesus is there. 
Because in looking upon his son, the father will know that he is the one who justifies. There's no one there who can condemn because this very one Jesus who died for our sins lives to be the guarantor, the guarantor of, the, of our salvation. He constantly says, my blood atones and has atoned. Who, what can separate us from the love of Christ? Absolutely nothing. Not as long as he lives to make intercession for us. I was reading all of these passages and a few more. And so I wrote down just for myself uh, to meditate upon what this means. Let me read what I wrote. Thirteen different applications. First one, actually 14 counting this one. No matter how desperately wicked my condition, no matter how unfavorable my case seems, the Father will always accept the Son's intercession on my behalf if I come through Christ to Him. No matter how bleak it seems, no matter how wicked I've been, the, son will, the Father will always accept the Son's intercession on my behalf. This means that Jesus will be my high priest before the Father, no matter what my condition, and that I will be accepted by God. That's amazing. No matter what my condition, if I draw near to Him, to God through Christ, believing in Him, trusting in Him, God will accept me. This means that if I cast myself upon Jesus, I'll never need another priest, for He'll always be there. He never leaves his post or his task which is intercede for me, for us. This means that if I sin, I have an advocate with the Father who pleads my case before the very throne of God. It's amazing, isn't it? To know that as long as Jesus lives. And I was thinking the other day that some cases take a long time to adjudicate. And one of the great pauses in every trial is a difficulty with the attorneys. Somebody has a mishap. Somebody has something go wrong. And so the, the, the thing gets postponed or canceled. And ah, it'll never happen to us. Because he always lives. This means that as long as Christ lives, God will never forget us. Never. It means as long as Christ lives, God will never cease to forgive us. This means as long as Christ lives, God will never cease to accept us. This means as long as Christ lives, or we can live with the assurance that our faith will never fail, that will never cease to draw near to Him. This means as long as Christ lives, God will never cease to hear our prayers that we might receive mercy and grace in our time of need. This means as long as Christ lives, we can live in hope that will be kept by the Father in Jesus' name, that the evil one will not defeat us. This means as long as Christ lives, we can live with the hope that we'll have joy. This means as long as Christ lives, we can live in the hope that we're progressing in holiness, by His truth. This means as long as Christ lives, we will be one with other believers of all time. This means as long as Christ lives, we'll have hope that we'll be with Him where He is and see His glory. This means as long as Christ lives, we'll have a sure and steadfast hope, an anchor of the soul that's gone behind the curtain into the merciful, loving, forgiving, strengthening, empowering, presence of God. So let's draw near to Him.
It was on that night that our Lord was betrayed that he earnestly desired to keep this last Passover meal with his disciples. And he came around the table that was set as a normal Passover meal, but our Lord Jesus spoke of its fulfillment even as he met with them. For he took the bread that was there and customarily broke it, but then gave it to his disciples and he said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup. And this too he gave to his disciples and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And he is king and priest who would mediate this new covenant. He would rule over it and it would be his body and his blood and his very life which would be for us. And as they would think upon Jesus in days and weeks and months and years, centuries, Christians would we'd remember the very fact that he lives. That when he died, his death was that we might live. When he rose, it was in confirmation, affirmation that the Father had received his sacrifice on our behalf, for he was a perfectly acceptable sacrifice, and he lives to intercede this very perfectly acceptable one who pleads our case always, and as long as he lives, then we will be alive in heaven as long as he lives our faith will persevere as long as he lives our prayers will be heard as long as he lives our sins will be forgiven as long as he lives we'll be kept by him as long as he, he lives we'll be protected by him as long as he lives we will have joy as long as he lives We'll be one with each other. As long as he lives, we'll be being sanctified. As long as he lives, we'll know that we live in the assurance that we'll see him and live in his glory. And he does live. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this table. For it is one of the ways that we can intentionally and consciously by your invitation, draw near unto Jesus. For he's here. He's present in this meal. We thank you for this bread and this juice, though it doesn't change. It does bring us, by your mysterious provision, into his presence. And it enables us to feed upon him by faith. So we pray that that would be true and as it is for us, we would pray that you would grant us this full assurance of hope knowing that since he lives, since his life is indestructible, since he is our high priest forever, since he guarantees all that he's promised, that we can live 
with the sure and steadfast anchor of our souls. Please do that work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I remind you, this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord, and He invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in the sight of God without hope, except in His sovereign mercy. And you receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation as He's offered to us in the Gospel, which is freely by way of His cross, by way of His resurrected life, and that you know, trust, that He is your High Priest forever, even at this moment in time, and forever interceding for you. And thus it's your heart's desire to live as one who is a follower of Christ. I invite you to come to draw near to him. These two sections come down this aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup and say, in your own mind, I know I have a high priest who lives forever. Please come. God's benediction. Now to him who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us, that which is well pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ our Lord. And together let us sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above you.